0: And you, the faithful remnant, (laughs) join me tonight in Psalm number 93. Psalm number 93. We have been working our way through the Psalms, and, well, we're making some headway here. We're over halfway home. Still have a ways to go. Psalm number 93. We have sort of run the gamut uh, on the Psalms from long to short to in between, and tonight we have a short one. Psalm number 93 only has five verses. In fact, uh, in some of the manuscripts... Uh, It is tacked on to the end of Psalm number 92, the one that we looked at last time or a few times back. It's been a while since uh, we've had some special things going on. Psalm 93. Follow along. I'm going to read through it right quick. Psalm 93. The Lord... If you're reading out of a King James, you'll notice that the word Lord is in little caps, which is your clue that this is translating the Hebrew word Yahweh, Jehovah. So Jehovah reigneth. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed with strength, wherewith he hath girded himself. The world also is established, or we would say established, That it cannot be moved. Thy throne is established of old. Thou art from everlasting. The floods have lifted up. O Lord, the floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their waves. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters. Yea, than the mighty waves of the sea. Thy testimonies are very sure. Holiness becometh thine house, O Lord, forever. Well, short, sweet, easy, interesting. I want to just uh, call your attention to the fact that this is clearly a psalm that celebrates what we would call the reign of Jehovah. Uh, Some of the Jewish writers, even predating the time of Jesus, uh, thought that this psalm, as well as the ones that immediately follow it, were all messianic, speaking of the coming reign of the Messiah, and it certainly may be, but that I would agree with them. They, we would have a disagreement over who the Messiah is. My uh, dear friend Don McKinney, who's now gone on to be with the Lord, um, used to take tour groups over to Israel, and these various tour groups generally have a guide who's an Israeli. Uh, who will take them from place to place and get them safely ferried about. And uh, this particular Jewish fella was always saying something like this. Well, when Messiah comes, he's going to do this. And he said then the next day, well, when Messiah comes, he's going to do this. And Don finally had his fill of it. And the next time this guy says, well, when Messiah comes, and Don says, you mean when he's coming again? Well, that's we believe Messiah has come. So they would even see that this is speaking of the reign of this one who comes in the name of his Father. Uh, let us take it verse by verse. We have that luxury tonight since it is so short. And let us first consider what we see here in verse 1 the statement that the Lord reigneth. Uh, right away. I would think that that does not sound all that astounding. In fact, there's other psalms that begin with the very same words, that the Lord reigns. But have you really ever seriously thought about what that means? That God reigns. We we sort of say around these parts that we put a lot of stress on the sovereignty of Almighty God. And what we mean by that is that God Rains. He's not trying to reign. He's not hoping you'll let him reign. He's raining. He's God. In fact, if you don't have a God who reigns, you'd have to say, well, let me talk to the God who does reign. I've often said, if you've got a disagreement there with Walmart, uh, you know, you you probably are wasting it. I'm saying Elizabeth used to work there and so, but you know. The girl at the cash register can only do so much for you, right? I mean, you know, we may have a legitimate beef, but you can't do everything we want you to do. Uh, We might as well say, let me talk to the person in charge. Because they're the ones who can do what we want. And there are people who say, why in the world would you waste your breath praying to a God who is absolutely sovereign? And I would counter with the question, why would you pray to a God who's not absolutely sovereign? Let me talk to who is. If it's fate in charge, then let's worship fate. Amazing fate, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Let's don't fool around unless God reigns. And so this psalm is basically dedicated to this proposition. but. If we think about the occasion of this psalm, and and there's various guesses, I'm guessing that it is at the end of the Babylonian captivity. I believe this psalm is a rather late one, and I believe there's reasons for thinking about that. And the reason is, is that if ever there were doubts in the Hebrew people about whether their God reigned, it would have been during the Babylonian captivity. Because you have to understand that warfare was not just battle against armies fighting armies, but it's gods fighting gods. Uh, you remember David when he went down in the valley of Elah to fight Goliath, and Goliath cursed him by the names of his gods. Well, David turned around, and did the same thing to you. Come here, you big glute. I'm gonna feed you to the birds. You think you're just resting? You know, you're just fighting a little boy. You ought to see the god behind me. So it is that it was seen to be that if you were defeated in battle, that not only was your army overcome, your God was overcome. And so here the Babylonians have come in and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, carried the people away into Babylon, into captivity, and it would certainly appear that to the outward eye the Babylonian gods had won. They're reigning. They're the big dog on the block. But over and over again, when we see the prophecies coming of their release from captivity, the good news, and and my, there's so many ways I could go with this tonight. I've got to watch myself or I'll spend all my time chasing these rabbits because the reason is these passages are referred to in, in the New Testament where Paul will quote them and apply them to the New Testament evangelists taking good news to the people. And what he's doing, he's quoting good news that was brought to the people in captivity and bondage. In Isaiah, we talk about, let me ask you this question, when we talk about evangelists bringing the good news, the glad tidings, there's a particular part of the anatomy of those evangelists That is often spoken of in prophecy and prophetic terms. What would it be? Feet. He says they have beautiful feet. Well, he apparently never saw my feet. Why would you say that the evangelist has beautiful feet? They're the ones coming over. How beautiful upon the mountains. The idea is is that here Israel has been in bondage and a runner is coming with the news that King Cyrus has just issued the decree that you're free to go home. You're no longer in bondage. You won't leave and go back to Israel. You can go. And so they speak of the sound, the beauty of those feet coming over the mountains, bringing that news. And that's what Paul then picks up in the New Testament over in Romans 10, that the modern-day evangelists, we're doing the same thing. In fact, we're really the ones that are bringing the good news because that was just released from Babylonian bondage. We're talking about release from a different kind of bondage, the bondage of sin, the bondage of death, and so forth. So just notice that they would come. They've got these beautiful feet because they're bringing the good news. But oftentimes that good news is couched in this phrase, Say unto Zion, Thy God reigneth. The very thing that you're doubting, the thing that you're questioning, the th- it does not look to the outward eye as if your God is in charge and calling the shots. But trust me, your God is reigning. And here's the token of it. Here's the proof. You're free. You've been enslaved. You were enslaved at His will. Now you're being freed by His will. And so therein lies the heart of the Gospel. Our God is reigning, and because our God reigns, when He gives salvation, when He gives deliverance, there's no one to thwart Him, no one to turn it on. Notice our God has put on a robe of majesty, and He's put on a girdle. Now, realize us manly types, we don't like to think about putting on girdles, but of course in the ancient world, that was your sash that you wore around your middle to sort of hold your, what what do you ladies call it, outfit outfit? you hold your outfit together with this sash and of course when you went to work or you went to battle you would gird up your loins is the expression you would tie that sash uh, between your legs and tie it up and so the idea is that God first of all has a robe of majesty or what we would call glory splendor but he's also put on strength his is not just a show of splendor we, we think of the queen in England hey Badmouth the Queen with an Australian here. But anyway, we think of the Queen in England and her all her regal carriage and so forth and the jewelry and all of this. But the Queen really doesn't have much power anymore. The power's in the hands of the Prime Minister. She's just figurehead. I mean, she looks queenly, uh, goes around with that wave, you know, queenly wave, but that's about it. And our God. Not only is arrayed in royal robes of majesty, but he has girded himself with strength and with power. He has the power to back it up. And so that's the description of our God here in verse 1. This is not just a show God. He's not just putting on a vain show. He is a God who is reigning. And you'll notice then in verse 2 we have the consequence of this reign. And this is what begins to set up a little bit of a contrast going on here in this psalm. You'll notice that most of the time in the Old Testament when you talked about the reign of a king. Well, let's just look one up. Go go to 2 Chronicles just a minute. Go to 2 Chronicles. You'll see what I'm talking about. In other words, when we talk about how the reigns of kings is described in the Bible, what language does the Bible use? Well, 2 Chronicles chapter 20 Verse thirty-one. Here, here's just an example. I just sort of picked this out at random. Second Chronicles twenty thirty-one. And Jehoshaphat. Y'all remember Jehoshaphat? Good king, bad king. Hey, you got a 50 60 50 shot here. He's a good king. Yeah, he was one of the few really good kings. Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, Josiah. They were they were the really good ones. Okay. Don't have a lot of those, but Jehoshaphat's one of those. Okay, here we got. Here's the description of his reign. Verse 31, Jehoshaphat reigned over Judah. He was 30 and 5 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 20 and 5 years in Jerusalem. Now, this is just a random sampling. You'll find this kind of statement made about almost every king that ever reigned in Judah. They were this old when they began to reign, and they reigned for this long. When we talk about the reign of Jehovah, do we say, well, Jehovah was this old when he began to reign, and then he reigned for this long? Look at how verse 2 of our text expresses it. Verse 2, thy throne is established of old, thou art from everlasting there was never a time when our God was not sovereign. There will never be a time coming when He, he ceases to be sovereign. His reign. What, what is it of speaking of? Messiah of His kingdom. There shall be no end. He reigns forever and ever. And so notice the because God is the God, the kind of God, That describes Himself, discloses Himself as this eternal being. Therefore, His reign is also eternal. His throne is eternal. Didn't start, doesn't end. Now, there's a sense in which Christ, the God-man, has ascended to the throne of God. And the mediatorial kingdom of Christ has a beginning. But if we speak of the throne of God in, in absolute sense, there was never a time... When God was not reigning on that throne. From the beginning to the end. And so you get the picture that the throne is established. You see that in verse 2? It's established. Now what do we say, what do we mean when we say that something is established? Sent. Ascent. Set. Set. We lost something in translation there, Anthony. It's set. Good word. Good explanation. What other words? Anybody but Anthony. <laughs> Fixed. Firm. Certain. That's the whole idea of being established. And notice his throne was established from old, from everlasting. And of course, Notice back in verse 1 that the world also is established, that it cannot be moved. Now that one causes a little bit of head scratching. Because we know that the world, although it doesn't feel like we're moving, we're actually moving about a thousand miles an hour. If it were to stop... We'd all go flying. You know what happens in a wreck when you hit a solid object? Everybody goes through the windshield. Well, we'd go through the windshield and everything else if the world suddenly came to a stop. And even that motion is not all the motion. Not only are we revolving on the axis, we're also circling the sun. And the sun is, in fact, circling the galaxy. And the galaxy is, in fact, moving through. So, so there's all kinds of motion going on. But But let's speak phenomenally. In the Bible, most of the time, when it speaks about scientific matters, it speaks phenomenally. And I mean by that the phenomena. How do we sense it? For instance, the weatherman tells you that the sun's going to rise and the sun's going to set at a certain time of the day. Scientifically, he's all wet. The sun doesn't rise. The sun doesn't set. The world turns. But phenomenally, that's how we describe it. That's how it looks to us. And to us does it seem to you that we're moving a thousand miles an hour? It seems to us that we are standing still. Right? Unless you have an earthquake or something like that. In other words, the world is fixed, it is steady, it's firm, it's it's rigid, it's something we can build a house on, and we don't have to worry about it shifting so forth. And so notice the connection in verse 1 between the establishment of God's throne in the heaven and the establishment of the world on earth. And it's the idea that because the God who reigns over the earth is fixed and firm and established, so then He establishes the world. And what we're going to see in the next few verses is a contrast and, and by, between the world. Now, this is not the world in the... Moral sense that John would use it in 1 John, that if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. Not the world as an evil place, but the world as the place where God's rule, God's reigning, is experienced. And so the, the notion is, is that the earth is, is being controlled. It is being ruled by the sovereign rule of our God in the heavens. We, we, we think that everything's out of control. Everything is helter skelter and chaos. And in fact, it's exactly the opposite. Everything is going exactly as God intended it to go. Nothing's out of control at all. Not one molecule of one drop of water anywhere in the world is not doing exactly what God, in His sovereignty, has called upon to do. Yes, Charles? That's right. Now that's, and I realize that's not clear yet. You wouldn't just look at those first two verses and necessarily draw that conclusion, but I think you'll see what I'm saying when we go on to the next verse, that you're going to see the contrast, the way it is with God, and then the way it is with something else. Okay? And that'll become clearer. Uh, I just want you, by the way, we can cheat here. We can let our eyes wander a little ahead over to Psalm 96 and just note in verse 10 that we have the similar association of ideas. God reigning and the earth being fixed and established. Look Psalm 96, verse 10. Say among the heathen that the Lord reigns, the world also shall be established that it shall not be moved. You see the connection again between God reigning and the earth being fixed, firm, established. Okay? Now, let's go to the other side of this And I think what what he's saying will become clearer because notice that in the next couple of verses, we're not talking about the world anymore, the earth. We're talking about the water, the floods, the waves of the sea, the waves of the ocean. Now, every single commentator I consulted, and I already had this idea, and I just want to see if they agree with me. You know, that's the way it is. They agree with me. I like them if they agree with me. Well, every one of them agreed with me. Every single one of them said that the water here, the waves, the floods, was not so much talking about literal water or oceans, but it's talking about mankind. That mankind is often used or spoken of in Scripture under the figure of the waters. Let me, let me give you a couple of illustrations. Go to uh, Luke, Luke 21, the Olivet Discourse. When Jesus is telling His disciples about the destruction of Jerusalem and they want to know when that's going to happen, what's going to be the sign, so they can get out of Dodge, you know. And uh, He begins to give them a description of what's going to happen. Uh, we're not going to talk about all that, just want to point out one verse. Luke 21, verse 25. Jesus says, There shall be signs in the sun, in the moon, in the stars, upon the earth, distress of nations, with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring. There's that association between the waves of the ocean being like the nations in their upheavals, in their... Flux. Let me use the word flux. We had a whole bunch of words, Anthony gave us most of them, that describe being established. Now notice that we're dealing with something that is the very opposite of being established. And if I'm right and all these other commentators are right, and that's an if, this Statement is not clearly drawn here that this is talking about mankind or the nations, but I think that's the sense of it. That what we're seeing here in this Psalm is a contrast between the fixedness of God and the changeableness of man. Now we sort of have to, oh, and there's other passages. I'm thinking of the Antichrist in, in Revelation 13. He saw a beast rise up where? Out of the sea, yeah, out of the out of the nations. The sea to Israel meant the Mediterranean basin, the, the nations around that that sea. And so the idea of the seas raging and roaring, the seas in a state of flux, is an illustration of the upheavals and the fall that befits nations. So that's a, an adequate sign. And remember that Israel was not really a sea-going people; they were landlubbers. I mean, yeah, I know, we got this Sea of Galilee. The sea of Galilee is just really a big lake. It's not the sea. Uh, they generally didn't go down to the sea. They were scared of the sea. Jonah, it shows you how scared, you know, how desperate he was to get on that ship to head to Tarshish, to go the opposite way from to, from Nineveh. And, of course, see what happened? The sea got him, you know, <laughs> the upheaval. That's why Israel didn't like the sea. Uh, the Phoenicians, on the other hand, they were a seagoing people. They were down there on the coast, and they were traders, and they sent the sea their ships all over the Mediterranean. The Israelites, they didn't—they didn't much like the sea. They were land lovers. They were sort of like my people. That stayed. I'm, I'm sort of like that old black fellow. They was talking about the, all these shark attacks down in Florida, and he said, "Are you scared of them? He says, "No, not till they can walk." <laughs> you know, you don't have to worry about drowning if you don't ever get in the shit in the boat, you know, in the sea. So the idea is, yeah, Anthony, sorry, is cast you into the sea. Hmm. Yeah, it's the abyss, the deep. This is the depths of the sea. Yeah, yeah. You see the allusions to this in in scripture, and so the sea was a very frightening place, and I could almost watch an Israelite. Uh, setting, say, up on a mountain, thing in Mount Carmel that overlooked the Mediterranean Sea. It's where the port city of Haifa is today. And, and sitting up on the beach or up on the rocks, watching the roaring of the sea. And I have never been on the ocean when there is a real big storm going on. I make it a point not to be on the ocean in such times. But talking to those who have been in that scenario. Even if they're on a huge vessel, the waves of the sea are a frightening, terrifying, humbling thing, mountainous, huge, dwarfing the ship, scary, and Notice sitting on the shore watching the raging of the sea, watching the waves come in and dash themselves upon the rocks there at the shore. It's almost, I can almost envision this, whoever wrote this psalm, sitting there watching that and then pinning his thoughts. Because that seems to be the contrast. Notice in verse 3 again, the floods have lifted up. And to lift up is, of course, the expression, uh, it's Nasa in Hebrew, to be lifted up in pride, usually. To be lifted up. Uh, You know, the proudful man, he's got this high look on his face. He's lifted up. Himself. So the waves, and of course, alluding to the nations of humanity, they've lifted themselves up. Notice, they've lifted up their voice. It's not just the wave itself lifts up, but of course, the sea makes a roar. So they've not only lifted up the wave, they've lifted up their voice. And do the nations do that? Well, you bet they do. They, they boast, they make their boast and their braggadocious and all of that. And so the idea is, here is mankind that is lifting itself up, bragging, boasting about itself. The floods lift up their waves. But notice verse 4. The Lord on high is mightier than the noise of many waters, yea, the mighty waves of the sea. Here we have the idea that... Let me ask you a question. If you were to take... Yeah, let's say you got this storm. Let's say you're down at you know, down at Destin and, and the storm we were we were, by the way, at Gulf Shores just a couple of weeks ago for two days with my daughter, and the tropical storm, Tropical Storm Debbie was we were just in the edge of it. But man, the wind was blowing. We didn't get any rain, but the wind blew like crazy, and boy was the rain, the sea going. The ocean was up in upheaval. And um If I took a picture of that, let's say I want to take a picture of this great big wave. I take a snapshot. Ten seconds later, I take another snapshot. What happens to that wave? It's not there anymore. What was up is now down. And what was down is now up. you get the picture? That the sea as much racket as it makes, as much agitation as you see, there's nothing steady and permanent about it. It's not like the land. It's not like the world that's fixed and steadfast. The sea is in a state of constant agitation. Nothing permanent. Everything temporal about it. And if that is an illustration of the nations of the earth, that what you're seeing is here sits the eternal god in the heavens watching the nations rage isn't that what psalm 2 tells us go go to psalm 2 hold your hold your finger here here's the nations raging If our illustration is correct, then this is the waters of the sea, the waves of the sea lifting themselves up. Psalm 2, verse 1. Why do the heathen rage? The peoples imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel. Here's their noise. Here's their boast. They take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder. Let us cast away their cords from us. In other words, we're going to declare our independence from God. Well, God must be worried. Verse 4 He who sitteth in the heaven shall laugh. The Lord shall have them in derision. Here is this sovereign, eternal God listening to the boisterous voice of the waves. The waves that aren't even going to be there. Can you imagine how puny a temporal being like you and I must appear in the eyes of an eternal God? And we make our threats and we make our boasts and we're going to say this is what we're going to do and so forth. And, And he doesn't even have to get excited. He just laughs. Laughs at our folly. Laughs at our foolishness. Oh, little wave. Give you a few more seconds and you'll not even be there anymore. And notice the nations. I think that Psalm 40, when it talks about, Psalm 40, Isaiah 40, that all the nations of the earth, they're like the small dust of the scale. They're like a drop of the bucket. The small dust of the scale. In the old days, you went to the store and they weighed out your produce. They didn't put them on the fancy scales that they got today. You had the, the weight. And, you know, they'd put a weight over here and a weight over here till it balances out. But would you, ladies, if you were buying some tomatoes in a scale like that, would you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, let me get that dust off that scale over there. That's going to mess up the weight. I mean, are you really concerned? I mean, the dust of the scale is so negligible you don't even pay any attention to it. Or the small drop of the bucket. As you're pulling your bucket up out of the well, some of the water sloshes out the top of the bucket. Do you say, oops, I gotta start all over again. Look at that, a drop spilled out. In other words, notice the statement is that the nations, all the nations of the earth are like the small dust of the scale. They're like the drop of the bucket. They are, to use Isaiah's terminology, less than nothing. I don't know how you get less than nothing. Less than nothing compared to God. And here you see it. Notice the contrast in this psalm. The fixedness, settledness, steadfastness of God Almighty and the roaring of the waters down here. Permanence contrasted with transientness. Eternal contrasted with that which is temporal the Lord's higher than the waves don't get excited about what the waves say James what is man that thou would be mine and you're exactly right when you think of how big God is and how little we are why would God give a hoot why would God even think on us It also gives a little insight into what went on. I said the Sea of Galilee really wasn't much but a big lake. But something happened there. There's a lot of water miracles connected with the ministry of our Lord. Changing water to wine, for instance. But there was a big one that happened out on the Sea of Galilee. You know what it was. The wind, the waves, the seasoned fishermen saying... We're about to sink. This is it. It's all up. And Jesus, asleep. Asleep. Master, carest thou not that we perish? O ye of little faith, Jesus stands and says to the waves and the wind, Peace. Be still. And when it's all over, they said, What? manner of man is this that even the winds and the waves because you see to us if you're an Israelite sitting on that shore watching the ocean this is out of control this is raging and seething this this cannot be channeled it cannot be. and here stands a man the God man who says peace be still sovereign Over the sea. Do you understand the significance of that now? This one must be God Himself. This must be that God who reigns over the sea. Whoever this is, is mightier than the waves. And that brings us to this last verse, which is sort of an encouragement, an exhortation. Notice two things fall out of all this. Number one, thy testimonies are very sure. (laughs) Notice, it's not just that they're sure, they're very sure. It's like you've run out of adjectives. How do you get sure than sure? It's either sure or it's not. It's like being a little bit pregnant. It's like being a little bit sure. You know, you're either sure or you're not. But notice, the, the psalmist adds this adjective here. Your testimonies are very sure. Now why would he say that? Well, look at the God that we worship. Look at the God who speaks. Would you say that the voice of the waves is very sure? <laughs> nah. It may be loud right now. It won't be loud in a few more seconds. Their voice will be still. Their boasts. Their prideful jabs at God. There will be worms meat in a little while. But God's testimonies, what God declares, you can take that to the bank. Because He is this eternal God whose throne is fixed and settled forever and ever. You can trust Him. That's what it says to us. You can safely trust the Word of this God. We want to think that faith comes by conjuring it up within us, that we exercise our faith. We we turn on faith. We've all got it in there somewhere, and we just need to hit the switch and exercise our faith. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. You don't get people to believe in God by standing over them with a club and banging them on the heads, saying, believe, believe, believe. The way faith is created is to present to the lost man this sovereign, immovable, immutable God. And that God is the God who has spoken in His Word. You can believe this. You can take this to the bank. You can put your trust. You can hang your hope. You can bet your soul on the veracity of God's Word. And then the second thing he notices here is holiness become a thine house, O Lord, forever. Holiness is a difficult concept in some ways for us to grasp. Most of the time we think holiness represents purity, righteousness. And it does, but that's really not the root meaning of the word. The word means to be set apart. And first of all, that notice that the God that we worship is a set-apart God. I mean by that that He's in a class by Himself. There are no rivals. There are no other gods. He's unique. He's the only God. He's holy. And then the notion of holiness carries with it, and I made up this word because there wasn't one I could find anywhere else, but that holiness means other thanness. The other thanness of God. We can describe our God in the terms of other thanness. You you mean what? Other than you. Whereas you have some wisdom, his wisdom, infinite, other than you, your wisdom. You have some power, right? But his power infinite other than this. Compared to yours. In other words, you see, not only is he in a class by himself, but all his attributes. That's why we say that holiness is not so much an attribute of God as it is the sum total of all his attributes. It's all his perfections rolled into one. It's who and what God is. And he's in a class by himself. He's holy. And therefore, holiness becometh him. In other words, the one who would be, approach God needs to come in holiness. He needs to come with clean hands, pure heart. And you say, here's where cleanness and purity comes in. Clean and purity as God defines it. In other words, we need to come in the way that God Himself... I And I'll just sum all of this up in saying what we ought to come away with tonight is this absolute wonder of the other-thanness of God. How unlike us He is. And as... James said a moment ago, why in the world would he think about a worm like me? A little old fire ant goes across the floor. I just squish him. I don't like him. Aggravates me. And yet God must be far higher than me than I am of the fire ant. I don't care what the fire ant thinks. Why would God care to disclose himself to me? And so there is this sense in which God is apart from us. transcendent. He's not like us. And yet at the same time, here's the other wonder that God has made a bridge between us and Himself in the person and work of His Son. His Son coming into this world and becoming one of us to bring us to God that God might through his son open a way of approach to his presence how cut off we would be any other way because he's holy I remember the old text back there in Joshua all the Armenians love to quote you know where Joshua says as for me and my house we're going to serve the Lord you choose this day who you'll serve me and my house we're going to serve the Lord and they say well see that there that's all in a choice I said, go back and read that text real good. Joshua, what is it, 24? You read carefully what Joshua said. He says, choose you this day who you will serve. Either those gods back there in Egypt that you came out of, or these gods over here on the other side of the river in Mesopotamia, Babylon. Choose you which of those gods you'll serve. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And they said, oh, we'll serve the Lord. We're going to serve the Lord. And he says you cannot serve the Lord because He's holy. Go back and read the text. You can't do that. He's too holy. Do you understand the amazing thing that God has done for us in Jesus Christ in that He has enabled us to draw nigh in peace, in blessing to this thrice holy God? good time for fireworks to go off. It's a good, good punctuation mark. Okay. Well, let us um, close tonight with the time of-